We'll be reading this morning in Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. And we stake our lives, our preaching, our very church on the reality that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Thanks for joining us on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. My name is Dylan, one of the pastors here. It's uh, awesome to be worshiping a risen Savior. I don't know if you remember in 2015, I think it was, Skittles came out with a Super Bowl commercial where there was uh, this town full of people that had one really strong, bulging arm and one normal arm. And, and what they were doing was when they'd have the last Skittle that two people wanted, they would arm wrestle for it. And so they all had these big, bulging arms on one side. The other side, however, was normal, flabby, weak, skinny, whatever that person's makeup was. In Isaiah 52, verse 13 through all of Isaiah 53, we, we have been shown and told that this is the arm of the Lord that's being revealed here. And, and I wonder, as Israel heard this, what they would have thought of. Would they have heard, when they're hearing of this servant, would they have heard that the side of the, the, the man in the commercial with the big, bulging, strong arm, or would they have seen and heard the, the weak side? They, they had heard of the arm of the Lord before, right? The arm of the Lord, one of the places where that is explicitly told to Israel before was in the Exodus, right? And here's the arm of the Lord bared, where he shows himself in power and in might, and he rips them out of a nation, redeeming them, and sends them on their way, providing for them every step along the way. This arm looks a little different, doesn't it? They had seen different arms, right? They, they had seen the, the power and the might of Assyria come and take the, the northern kingdom over. They'd seen some strength and power and might all around them. And, and this looks a little bit odd, doesn't it? It's probably not what they hoped for. And when they heard it, it's probably not what they wanted to hear. There's actually evidence of this. There's a Targum, which is an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, that in this translation of this passage downplays the sufferings of the servant because that doesn't sound like a sovereign king. That doesn't sound like a powerful salvation force. doesn't sound like the arm of the Lord. The disciples, when they step onto the scene and they're walking with Jesus, they have no category for a suffering servant, do they? He tells them, I'm going to suffer and die. And they're like, what are you talking about? They rebuke him. They have no category in their minds, even though they likely heard Isaiah chapter 53. They had no concept of a dying Christ, of a dying Savior. Didn't sound very effective when they were getting ready to be entered into, in the context of Isaiah, into a world of judgment and exile because of their sin. 
And maybe we can identify a bit. When you look around in our world, when you walk in it Monday through Saturday, when it doesn't sound like it sounds today, sometimes it looks like the arm of the Lord might be a bit weak. Might feel and seem as if we're losing. And the only thing that we've got is a message of a guy that was buried and we think was raised, but no, we haven't seen him. Sometimes it might seem like if we're picking which arm of the Lord is revealed, it doesn't look so much like the mighty strong side that's going to arm wrestle people for a skittle. It looks like the arm that's weak and flabby. can only do normal things. But we need the full picture of the arm of the Lord, don't we? And Isaiah gives us the full picture. And what they didn't receive, we get. What they could have missed, we get the benefit of seeing on this side of the resurrection. We actually today get a better picture of the arm of the Lord than Isaiah's original audience. The, the arm of the Lord that's revealed in Isaiah 53 is an arm that is pleased to accomplish salvation because it's strong enough to do that for nations and it is pleased to apply that salvation. This servant's Work that he achieves is a salvation work. It's a deliverance, restoration to God work. And he doesn't just achieve it, he bestows it as the victor. That's what Isaiah 53 gives us. It speaks to us, especially in this last portion, of salvation accomplished and salvation applied. But the last we heard of this servant, the description was that he was going, verse 7, to be a lamb, sacrificial lamb led to the slaughter. He is the one who was, verse 8, stricken for others' transgressions. And verse 9, his grave was to be made with the wicked, though he himself was sinless. We know this as the storyline of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life in obedience to his Father, died a sacrificial death, and was buried because some rich men said, hey, can we have his body and put him in a tomb that we've already bought? The New Testament says of this Jesus that he was, Romans 4.25, delivered up for our trespasses. 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he who knew no sin was made to be sin. Or 1 Peter 2, chapter 20, or verse 24, tells us that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Amen. This is the strange and saving arm of the Lord at work. But what Isaiah gives us next is stunning. Look in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. There's emphasis here in the text. Yet, yet is strong. Yet the Lord. He's bringing emphasis to the Lord. All through, when you read Isaiah 53, it sounds as if sin is doing this. I mean, look up and up here. He has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. All through, it sounds like sin did this. But that's only partially true. Did, did sin do this? Yes. <laughs> but the Lord did this. And, and there's the emphasis right there. Yet the Lord, yes, the Lord is what he's getting at. The Lord did this. Look at verse 6. It's the Lord who laid on him the iniquity of us all. Hey, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, it tells us that Jesus, the one who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, was, he was crucified at the hands of lawless men. So who did this? The lawless men, or was it at the knowledge and will and crushing of the Lord? Yes. It was the will of the Lord to deliver Jesus to be crucified. It was the will of the Lord to deliver up Jesus to be crushed. The, the word will there, another way to translate that, it was of the pleasure of God. It pleased God to crush him. God was pleased to crush this servant. That's what it says. That's staggering. That's scandalous. 
think maybe we can wrap our minds around that in human terms, right? Like, we have many that serve in our military. Here is, if, if I was a father of someone who's in the military, like, I, man, it, it's pleasing to me that you would take on some sacrifice on behalf of others. But I think I would stop far short of saying that if you died in the act of that service, that that itself, that act would be pleasing. But that seems to be what is said here. The Lord is pleased to crush him. Does that sound a little bit off? Like, what is the Lord doing here? And what kind of God is this that would be pleased to crush anyone, especially a sinless one? And before we rush to accusing God of some sort of uh, divine child abuse or or of being sadistic in, in his character, let's remember the nature of the servant's sacrifice. This sacrifice that the servant makes here in Isaiah 53 is beyond a shadow of doubt a willing sacrifice. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's not fighting. He's like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that's for its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He didn't do anything and he doesn't stand up to justify himself. He's a willing, submissive sacrifice. He submits to the suffering in full knowledge of what it's going to cost. He knows he's going to the slaughter. Jesus, when he steps onto the earth, he he tells his disciples repeatedly, I'm going to die. And what does he do? He sets his face like flint to Jerusalem, going to the place where he would be crucified. John chapter 12, they speak of this hour, and the hour in the book of John is the hour when Jesus is going to be lifted up, when he's going to be crucified, when he's raised up on a cross. That's the hour. And and when he comes to that hour, they question him about this. Uh, He knows his hour is coming. Here's what it says in John 12, 27. He says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, for this purpose I've come. I've come for this hour. He's a willing sacrifice here. He knows it's the will of the Lord to crush him, and yet he desires to go and do that will. We see this in mysterious Gethsemane, don't we? In Gethsemane, we get this inside look of of Jesus before he enters into intense suffering on the cross. And maybe he has his most intense suffering there in the garden and his soul, he says, is distressed, deeply troubled. But, but listen to what he says here in the midst of this sorrow and trouble that he faces. In Mark chapter 14, verse 34, he says, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here, speaking to his disciple, and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed, If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Yes. Now, one, one theologian comment, comments that he says this, As a human being, he dreads death as death. And he prays that this cup may pass from him. But at the same time, he surrenders himself to the counsel and the will of the Father. How many of us, if we were in that moment, would have said, remove this cup from me, and we would have been Ready to say amen right there. How tempted was Jesus to do that? We don't know. Like, remove this cup and that's the end of it. But he doesn't stop there because at the same time, he's surrendering himself to the Father's will. He was surrendered fully to it. It was his pleasure to do the Father's will. He was resolved to drink the cup that was set before him for this very hour. He had come and he doesn't want to be, the cup to be removed from him. This is displayed prominently when he's arrested a few minutes after this prayer. He's, people come to him, soldiers come to arrest him, and Peter, he sees this as a great threat, and he grabs a sword and he strikes, doesn't he? It's not supposed to happen. I'll go with you even to death. And Jesus says, hey, wait, Peter, John 18, 11, what does he say? Shall I not drink this cup? 
He knew the cup was coming. He asked, remove it, but not, not my will, yours. And then he says, I'm going to drink this cup. He stands up with resolve. In Matthew, it records that he says, could I not have asked the Father to send legions of angels to deliver me? But I didn't. What did he ask? He didn't ask that. He asked, let your will be done. He knows the Father's will and pleasure, and he arises with resolve to carry that will out. He's ready. He wants it. He never has that prayer again. We only see him again with his face set like flint going to the cross willingly. He's not trying to avoid the cup. He's taking responsibility for it. He chooses it freely, lovingly, willingly. He faces it and he drains it all the way down. Philippians 2 says he humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we look at Isaiah 53, 10, it says the will of the Lord, the pleasure of the Lord to crush him. We should not read into that that this is abuse. This is his will and pleasure and the servant's will and pleasure too. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He's a willing sacrifice. Yes, he was crushed at the pleasure of the Lord, but he was pleased to fulfill that will. Perhaps even more convincing that this is not abuse from a heavenly father is the servant's identity. Do you remember the one who's crushed here in verse 10? In chapter 52, verse 13, it says, Behold my servant, he shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up and exalted. Remember when those words are used in Isaiah? They're only used of the Lord. This is the Lord at work here is what Isaiah is getting at. Verse 1, To whom of the arm, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Like the arm of the Lord is being revealed in the servant. You, you cannot separate the two. The, this arm is the Lord, though distinct. Isn't that strange? This crushed servant is identified with the Lord as the Lord, though distinct from the Lord. The only thing that can fit that, the only person that can fit that is Jesus. Who John chapter 1 verse 1 tells us, Jesus, he, he was the word that was in the beginning with God and he was God. Right? And all things were created through him and for him. So when we come to Jesus... We are speaking of one who is no inferior to the Lord. This is his equal. As one who was in the beginning with God and was God, Jesus knew that this crushing was coming. He knew this crushing as part of the eternal plan and counsel of God, and he steps in anyway to carry it out to its end. As one who was in the beginning with God, he knew every single part of this, and he carries it out. Think of mysterious Gethsemane again. During the arrest of Jesus... They come to him and he says, who are you looking for? And they says, well, Jesus. And he says, I am he. I am. And you know, remember what happens? They fall down. Who's in charge of this scene? <laughs> the soldiers or the Lord? <laughs> he says, I am. And they fall down. You go to the cross. And what happens in midday as this Jesus was crucified, that the sun is darkened, the earth quakes, and there's a centurion standing by and he declares the truth that almost like if he doesn't cry out, the stones probably would have. This is the Son of God. This servant is led to the slaughter willingly, and this servant is himself God. God is making the sacrifice. This servant doesn't suffer divine child abuse. He isn't the victim of a cruel father who's just sadistic and, and wants pain. But again, we need to ask, why did it please God to crush him? We have to think about who this Lord is. This is the Lord that we see revealed in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah gets a vision of the Lord and the heavens are shown to him. And in the heavens, you have seraphim that are covering their face because they can't look at the brilliance of the glory of God. And they're crying out, shaking the very foundations of this place, saying, holy, holy, holy. This is a thrice 
holy God. And the one thing that a holy God can't do in the face of sin is nothing. Sin demands blood. Life. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 says, Yeah, I gave you some ways to shed blood for the forgiveness of sins, but it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But that's what's needed. Sacrificial lambs and bulls and goats, they pointed the way, but they couldn't really be a substitute. They couldn't be an equal to me and my sin. But Isaiah presents a servant who can, who is identified with the Lord, but is fully in the form of man, right? And this servant is willing and perfect and equal to God and fully identified with his people. In verse 6, it says that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord laid on him. In verse 10, that's the Lord's role again. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The Lord is acting to meet his own holy and just demands to satisfy his own holiness and he's acting to do that through this servant. One theologian says this, what can we say is the precise nature of the Father's action at Calvary? The New Testament answer is breathtaking. He acted in the role of priest just as Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, so God the Father gave his one and only Son just as Christ delivered up himself as a fragrant offering, so God the Father delivered up his own Son. Clearly then, corresponding to the priesthood of the self-giving Son, there is a priesthood of God the Father. And from this point of view, Golgotha becomes his temple where far from abusing a child or sadistically inflicting cruelty, he is engaged in the most solemn business that earth can witness. He's offering a sacrifice. The cross is his altar and his own son, the sacrifice. God demands the sacrifice. God supplies the sacrifice. God offers the sacrifice. God is the sacrifice. You remember Romans 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Why? That he might, in his righteousness, pass over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. He does this he, to show his righteousness, to be just. He has to have a propitiation, a blood sacrifice, turning away his wrath that is just upon sinners. And he sends his son. He must be just. And in the servant being crushed, he is just. This is why it pleased the Lord to crush him. He satisfies his demands of holiness through the servants. God is pleased to be just. But another reason why it was his will and pleasure to crush is given to us in verse 10. Yeah, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. But when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The, the language through verse 10 is all sacrificial language. So there's no missing the intention of the father here and of the servant. This is to make a sacrifice for sin. The servant's intention was to be an offering, to make an offering, to, to lay himself down as the lamb of God. And, and what's on the other side of that offering according to verse 10? Offspring. Offspring. This offspring is achieved through 
offering, through sacrifice. Again, remember Romans chapter 3. He, he puts forward the Son as a propitiation for sins, that He might be just and what? The justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He loves to be both. He loves to be both just and the justifier. And through the servant, He is both. He does both. He is both just and and the justifier. Think of the cross. This is the place where we see divine justice enacted, and this is the place where if you are saved, you find your justification, that you can be made right in the sight of God. His pleasure in crushing the servant and the servant's pleasure in being crushed is not found in the pain. It's found in the justice done and then the justification that's offered. Through this servant's sacrificial offering, blood offering of himself, salvation is accomplished. You might look at verse 10 and it might cause some concern. It might rattle you a bit. It's a staggering verse that it's the Lord's pleasure and will to crush might repulse you a little bit or cause some doubt. But when you see it rightly as God being in this verse, both just and the justifier, both the priest and the sacrificial lamb accomplishing salvation, all of a sudden you can look in verse 10 and say, that's really good. Perhaps that's why we call it Good Friday when we remember the cross. Something really good happening there. This takes into account not only God's demands for blood, God's provision of blood, but it takes into account what we've seen in this passage so far. In verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Friends, that's us. We have turned. We've strayed. We've turned each one of us to our own way. We've given God the stiff arm. We are offenders of a holy God. And because of our sin, blood is required of us. Sacrifice is required. The, the wages of sin, the scripture is clear, is death. And the blood of bulls and goats won't do. Our performance won't do. Our good works aren't going to cut it. Our religion aren't going to cut it. But God made a way. He made a way through blood sacrifice through himself. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation, a blood sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice that he might be just and the justifier. He is the propitiation, Romans tells us, to be received how? By faith. The just and the justifier of the one who has what? Faith in Jesus. This is the great exchange. He takes our wrath, we get his righteousness. He takes our abandonment for our sin, we get his sonship forever, eternally, eternally welcomed. What kind of God would be pleased to crush the servants? I think it's a God who would want to save sinners. It's a God who is loving, who is great, who is just. A God who would cut no corners, but would still have a people for his own possession forever. That's the God that would crush his son. But when we came to verse 10, where did we begin? The servant in verse 9 is in the grave. He's in the grave with the wicked. The arm of the Lord, verse 9, is buried. And it's a nice story to think about a servant coming and sacrificing himself, substituting himself for sinners. And thinking about even the application of it, like what that sacrifice does. But, but what do we think now if the arm of the Lord is buried? Let's read verse 10 again. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. The arm was in the grave in verse 9, but it seems fine now. now. Verse 10, Isaiah doesn't use the word resurrection, but he might as well have. The arm of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, seems to be doing fine. Right? He's, he's alive. He's active. He, he's 
looking around. He's seeing the offspring of his work that he accomplished in his death. And his days are prolonged. This is a risen servant. The grave couldn't keep him. The arm was buried, but it just crawled right back out again. After Jesus himself was buried, Matthew chapter 27, verse 65, they ask for soldiers to guard the tomb. And, and Pilate tells them, you, you have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you, as secure as you can. And you, you probably, like, I mean, if you're thinking back, as Matthew's writing that, I bet he wrote it with a grin. Yeah, go and make it as secure as you can. Good one. Because Matthew knows the one that was buried in that tomb. And then he saw him on the other side. Because he didn't stay there long. In Acts chapter 2, verse 24, it said that God raised him, losing the pains of death because it was impossible for death to hold him. That arm that we saw speaking of this suffering servant, the one who was going to be despised and rejected by men, it looked weak and flabby like it couldn't do much. And we turn around and we're like, on the other side of the grave, it looks a little different, doesn't it? It looks a little stronger. What kind of arm, what kind of salvation can come all the way through death and start looking on the other side of death at what he's done in his death? Only the Lord. He was the lamb making a needed sacrifice and dying. He was slaughtered. He was crushed. That's what our sin deserves. But because this was a lamb without blemish, because this is the arm of the Lord, is the Lord himself, payment was made and payment was accepted, received in full. It was pleasing to the Lord. And so he raised him from the dead in full satisfaction that this payment that has been made is received. And the rest of Isaiah 53, the servant, he's not like others who have died and you don't describe the rest of Isaiah 53 if this servant is dead. This is an active servant. He's a pleased servant. He's enjoying things as the servant. He's applying them. He, he offers himself, and then on the other side, verse 10, he sees his offspring. As if he planted a seed and out came fruit. He has prolonged days in verse 10. He's enjoying the offspring, the, the produce of what his sacrifice has done. The will of the Lord, it says, prospers in his hand. In other words, he's alive and active. And the hand that offered the sacrifice is the hand that is now applying it. He's pleased to apply it. The, the word will is used here at the end of verse 10. It, it brackets. Verse 10. God is pleased to crush him, and then God is pleased again. It's the good pleasure to crush the son to accomplish salvation, and it's the good pleasure to prosper, to apply the salvation to offspring. That one author says this, that the pleasure of the Lord, which prompted the saving death, includes also his pleasure concerning the enjoyment of its benefits. It's the hand of the servant that brings the benefits of the atonement to those the Lord wills. The Lord thus wills the work and the reception of salvation. And the servant willingly ensures both. Let there be no mistake about the Lord's arm and its power, but also let there be no mistake about its intent. We can often wonder, I think, about the Lord's disposition to us. And I think that's fair because in verse 6, it's really true about us too, isn't it? That we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way. We thought we knew better than God. And so we can wonder about God's disposition to us. But look at this servant here and think about God's disposition toward us. He was led to the slaughter to make an offering. He was killed to make himself as a ransom for many. What can explain that but the, the big heart and love of God? And look at what he does in this offering. He's not holding on to it, making us earn it, making us perform to get it. 
Like you got to reach the next level, he applies it. It's in his hand that it's prospering. He's not sighing, I guess I'll have to go take this sacrifice in myself and then I guess I'll have to apply it. Pleasure on each side of this. Pleased to accomplish it. Pleased to apply it. He's pleased with both. Behold this servant. That's what Isaiah wants us to do. Look at the servant who would be pleased to not only be the sacrifice, but pleased to apply it. And what you do when you come to the servant is you just come with need. All you need to have this salvation that he has accomplished applied to you is need. He contributes everything else. You come with need. You behold in your need the servant and you have what you need. And so from Isaiah 53.10 onward, there's no more offering being made. He's busy. He's active. He's administering. He's applying these benefits that he's won. Look in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The sacrificial offering has been made. God's justice has been satisfied. He is pleased with it. He is satisfied with it. But there's another satisfaction listed here. The servant sees the fruit of his work, and he's satisfied in that too. What is he seeing? He's taking delight and pleasure in the outcome of his work, and the outcome is people. Redeemed people, many of them, not few, many of them, they're saved, they're redeemed. This is why Jesus came. He says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many, not a few, many. In Mark chapter 14, verse 24, he's in the Last Supper, right? And he says, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for who? For many. Redemption is accomplished and redemption is applied. Salvation is won and salvation is applied in Jesus. Many are counted righteous. We read this in Romans chapter 5. Verse 15 says, The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for Many. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Iniquities in the servant really are born away. They're carried. They're gone. They're taken care of. They're paid in full. First John chapter 3, verse 5 says that he came to take away our sins. Or if we look in Galatians chapter 3, this is the one who became a curse for us to deliver us from the curse. And he delivered us from the curse, not just from a few different tribes. He, he came to bring the blessing that was spoken of in Abraham to the Gentiles, Amen. to the nations. Amen. He's the lamb whose blood covers the mercy seat that actually carries sin away. He's the lamb that, that comes and is spread on the, the mercy seat and the lamb that is driven out of the camp. In other words, in theological terms, he makes propitiation for our sins, turning away the Father's wrath, and he's the expiation of our sins, removing sin far from us. And Jesus is both. These are not hypothetical people that he's looking at here. These iniquities aren't hypothetical iniquities that he bears away. He sees them. After Jesus, he raised, think of what he sees in the garden. He sees Mary. In Luke chapter 24, on the road to Emmaus, he sees two of his disciples. In the room where his disciples are tucked away, he's risen. He's died, accomplished salvation, and he comes to them, and he sees the ones that it's going to be applied to. He sees them on the beach after a night of fishing. 
They get to see Jesus and he sees them. This is the risen servant who has been crushed, who is now on the other side of the grave, who sees. But, but surely that's not all he sees, right? He sees all who look on him by faith. All who see him, not as the world, as this with man that's, that's not worth following or one that doesn't seem like we should look to or maybe even one we'd turn our face from. That's how many see him in Isaiah 53. That's not how we see him. We see him as the many. The, the many who look on him and say of him, surely he has borne my iniquities. He has carried my transgressions. The Lord laid on him my iniquity. Those who come with need, who know they're their transgressions, who know their iniquities and sins, who know that they are astray and have turned to their own way, the Lord is pleased to lay on the servant the iniquities of that person. He is pleased to not only accomplish salvation, but then apply it to them. So if you see this servant by faith, then have no doubt that he sees you as he sees the rest of this offspring here. He, he might have seen you here. He's looking out on his offspring. Is your face in that? Think about the amazing reality of that. That he's looking on what he's achieved and your face, if you look at him by faith, is among that crowd. Amen. The salvation accomplished in his sacrificial death is salvation applied in his resurrection life. And it pleases the Lord so much so that we see verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many... And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Do you remember in, in chapter 52, verse 13, where this whole thing started? My servant, he's going to act wisely. He's going to be high and lifted up. He's going to be exalted. Here he's exalted. All, uh, this is after the suffering, right? He did not go through this crushing. He, he was crushed. He was led to the slaughter. And on the other side of the slaughter, look what's happening, exactly what verse 13 said. He's high and exalted and lifted up. He's getting this portion. Right? He is the one who is he's receiving the spoils of the victory. This is what Philippians chapter 2 said, that he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so what happened? The Lord gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and proclaim him as Lord. Christ is Lord. It looked strange. Didn't it look strange? It's a suffering servant. A slaughtered servant, one who had no form that we should look at him. We, we weren't a, a drawn to him by what he looked like. He poured out his soul. You remember on the cross, he, he looked like anything but a Messiah there and a king there, right? He's pouring out his soul to death. He was numbered with transgressors. There's a, there again, we're like, this looks strange. There's thieves on either side of you. That's what happens to people that, that go against the Romans. They die like this, cruel deaths, and it's people like this, and you're in the middle of them? Identifying fully with them, but it ends in exaltation. He looked like a servant who, if he came home at all, he'd return home with his tail between his legs in defeat. But instead, this servant is the servant who returns in victory, and he comes with spoils with him. The, the victory of war is written on him. He's bloodstained, but he comes triumphantly. The suffering servant is now the triumphant servant. And his exaltation has come through his humiliation. And I want us to notice all the reversals that you see here. This was one who, verse 8, was cut off from the land of the living, and now he's seeing his offspring. He was cut off, and now his days are prolonged. 
This is the one who was stricken and now he prospers. This is the one who is in the grave, but now he's alive and satisfied. This is the one who was despised by men and now he has the spoils along with the strong. This is the one who was slaughtered and now he's the victor. Reversal, reversal, reversal. God keeps turning things back. Look at what this servant does with his victory. Verse 12. Yet he bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. Like, he bears their sin and then he makes intercession for them. He, he doesn't make intercession for the self-sufficient. He doesn't make intercession for the self-saved. He doesn't make intercession for those who are kind of okay. He makes intercession for transgressors, for sinners, for those who know that they're found in this passage in verse 6, that they were astray, but that the Lord laid on him, the servant, the iniquity that they deserved to be laid on them. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, it says, If we were saved by his death, how much more shall we be saved by his life? Romans chapter 8, verse 34, right? he is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who indeed lives to make intercession. Chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews says that he is the one who saves to the uttermost, and he's able, those who draw near to him are able to be saved to the uttermost. Because he lives to make intercession for them. You know, we're in that, right? We're uttermost sinners and we have an uttermost Savior there. What's he doing with the salvation that he paid for with his blood? He's not making more offerings and sacrifices because nothing was lacking in his offering and sacrifice. What's he doing here? He's applying it. He's sprinkling nations. That's what 53 verse 15 told us. He's sprinkling nations. He, he's calling, he's justifying, and he's glorifying those who look to him by faith. But Isaiah further links verses 10 through 12 with what we've seen before. Verses 10 through 12 are strongly linked with verses 4 through 6. The original has an emphasis and starts almost the exact same. In verse 4 it says, surely he, the Lord, has borne our griefs. In, in verse 10, yet he, yet the Lord... There's emphasis on the Lord doing these actions here, and they share so many common words. You could go through there and mark some of the common words. Grief, crush, bear, sin, all courts of sin, words, and we could go on. And one commentator just tells us this way plainly, that the implication is that the many who are the object of both the saving work of the servant and its application in verses 10 through 12 are the straying sheep of verse 6, whose iniquities Yahweh, the Lord, laid upon the servant and who are converted miraculously by his death. Amen. Here's what this tells us. If you're astray, there can be a place for you in verses 10 through 12. Amen. You need to behold this servant. You need to look on him with faith. That's the only way to be among those who are saved, who the Lord not only has accomplished salvation for, but applies it to and intercedes for. If you're beholding Jesus rightly, if you're looking upon Christ by faith, if you're in Christ, then here's what we get from this as well. Romans 8.31 tells us, If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also, not, not also with him graciously give us all things? Who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who is the one who could bring a charge, and he is satisfied pleased to crush the son who is to condemn christ jesus is the one who died more than that who is raised who indeed is interceding for us who can separate us from the love of christ he was pleased to accomplish salvation and he's pleased 
to apply it. And so if you're looking upon Jesus rightly today, here's what we can say. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. We follow, if we're in Christ, a a suffering servant, one who was crushed and was put in the grave. That might be our story too. We might suffer and be crushed and put in the grave. But we also follow a risen Savior. Most likely, we will die and we will be put in the grave. But if we follow a risen Savior, this servant of Isaiah 53, when we are put in the grave, it will be but God's acre. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote this poem called God's Acre. Beautiful words, and he says this. I like that ancient Saxon phrase which calls the burial ground God's Acre. It is just. It consecrates each grave within its walls and breathes a benison o'er the sleeping dust. God's Acre. Yes, that blessed name imparts comfort to those who in the grave have sown the seed that they had garnered in their hearts, their bread of life, alas, no more their own. Into its furrows shall we all be cast in the sure faith that we shall rise again. At the great harvest when the archangels blast shall winnow like a fan the chaff and grain. Then shall the good stand in immortal bloom in the fair gardens of that second birth and each bright blossom mingle its perfume with that of flowers which never bloomed on earth. With thy rude plowshare death, turn up the sod and spread the furrow for the seed we sow. This is the field and acre of our God. This is the place where human harvests grow. Sleeping dust to immortal bloom if planted in God's acre by faith. Church, the servant accomplished it and he will see it done. He will see it applied for those who look on him by faith to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that it pleased you to crush your son. And Jesus, we are grateful that you were pleased to be crushed. Where would we be if you weren't? We would have no hope. But Lord, we do have hope. Because you were crushed. You bore the penalty for our sin. You took on the death that we deserved. And Lord, we now stand here today because you stand at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. You should have to get it up there, so. Every day. Yeah, just, just keep it on. You should get it. I just give it to Dustin when I'm done. I'll, I'll be in there with you.